life is full of decisions. Every single day we are bombarded with decision after decision after decision. Some seemingly small and some have significant impact. And, and, and as we make decisions, big decisions, we feel that pressure mounting to get it right, to make the right decision. I mean, some of you are probably in life right there, right now. You're making some pretty big decisions in your life that might change the course of your future, your family's future. Maybe it's decisions like which, which college to go to, or should I switch majors or not? Maybe it's decisions like, hey, should I take that promotion or should I stay where I'm at? Maybe it's like money decisions, like should I buy that home or should we continue to rent? Maybe it's decisions like relationally, like, hey, should, should I date that guy or that girl? Should I commit my life to them and, and get engaged? Should, should I leave my spouse or not? You see, every one of us faces decisions every single day of our lives. And, and at some level, when we make decisions as, as followers of Christ, we, we want to know what God wants us to do. Like, I mean, at some, some point, like, we're just screaming out to God, God, I got a major decision, and I don't know what to do, and I would just love it if you would let me know what you want from me. Like, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever you want, God, but I just don't know what you want. And I think a lot of us, we, we feel that way. What is God's will for my life in this decision, in the next decision? And here's what we do. We cry out to God, God, what do you want? Would you just give me a sign? And that's kind of how we view God's will for our life is, is God is, is going to somehow miraculously write it in the clouds, go that way or don't go that way. Choose this or that. And we, we view God's will as the miraculous, the crazy. I mean, I've been guilty of that. I mean, I remember when Ashley and I were dating. Ashley's my wife now. And we're about five months into the, the dating journey. And I was starting to fall for Ashley, like head over heels, like, man, I was hooked. I liked this girl. Poor Ashley, five months into it, she probably was still figuring out if she even liked me or not. And so we're out to dinner and we're just kind of, you know, having a romantic dinner. We're having great conversation, continuing the journey of getting to know one another. And, and, and you have to just kind of know something about me. In, in, in like relationships, it's the small things that bug me the most. It's the, the, the little things that probably shouldn't matter that matter to me. And so we're sitting at, at, at dinner and, you know, we're eating. Ashley's eating a salad. And all of a sudden, as she's eating the salad and she's talking to me, she gets this chunk of spinach stuck in her two front teeth. And it wasn't one of those pieces of spinach that you could disguise or ignore. Like everywhere and every word she said, I just followed the spinach. And I was like, oh, no. What, what am I gonna do? And let me tell you something. That was the cutest piece of spinach I ever laid my eyes on. And it was like, wow, God, if I can get past this, this must be a sign from you. I'm gonna marry this girl. And it's a funny story, but I, I think probably a lot of us, that's kind of how we view God's will in our life. That's how God provides his answers for us is through kind of these weird signs that we, maybe we read a little bit too much into. And my question this morning as we begin this series, waiting for a sign, is that how God's will works? Does God only work through the miraculous? And I think as we walk through these next four weeks, what we're going to figure out is God's will usually is not write it in the clouds. It's usually simpler and easier to understand. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to walk through discovering God's will. 
But before we dive into the minutia, before we dive into the details of God's will, I think we have to have a broad perspective, a broad definition of what God's will looks like and define it. Because when, it, when you look at God's will, you can break it down into three categories. Three categories, and I'll walk you through these three categories of God's will. The first one is the will, God's will of decree. God's will of decree, and here's what this is, is this is God's sovereign plan that always comes to pass no matter what. This is the part of God's will that you and I, honestly, we have no say in. It doesn't matter what we think, our opinions. These are things that, 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 that God knew were going to happen from the very beginning to the very end. It's his will of decree. In fact, Isaiah chapter 46 kind of gives us insight into the way God works in this realm of his will. It says, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So this part of, of, of God's will, this category, are the things that no matter what we decide in life, the choices we make from day to day, they do not affect God's sovereign plan for the entire world. These are things that I like to say, these are things that shall be. Things that shall be. We have no choice or say in it. Our opinion doesn't matter. Let me give you some examples of this type of will. This is like God creating the world. This is like God sending Jesus to redeem us from our sins. God resurrecting Jesus from the dead to give us victory over our sin. This is things like Jesus one day is going to come back. None of what we do changes those facts because it's things that will take place no matter what. That is God's will of decree. And at some level, we have to pause here because really everything in our world revolves around this type of God's will. Because we believe at the church that God is sovereign. He, he is in control. And so he knows the end from the beginning. But here's what's hard about God's will is at some level, God is in control. But what's hard for our minds to wrap around and to digest is that God knows everything, but yet he still allows you and I to have freedom to choose to make choices in life that actually affect the future of our lives. And so it's hard to, in our, in our finite minds to kind of comprehend how God knows, but yet God still gives us freedom. We're not robots. And here's what I want you to understand. There are things that God allows in life, but doesn't necessarily cause. There are things in life, that you, circumstances and events that happen in our world that, that we walk through, that we deal with, that God has allowed to happen, but he is not the cause of it. Let me say it a little bit differently. God permits them. He doesn't directly do them. He, he, he allows them, but he is not the cause of them. So the first category, things that shall be. We have no say. The second category of God's will is God's will of desire. God's will of desire, and here's what this is, is this is God's desire for your life and my life that align with his character. You see, when it comes to knowing God's will, this is kind of the one we're looking for, God's desires for our life. You see, out of who God is, his character, who he is, he, he expresses some desires through his word and through his spirit, ways that we should act, ways that we should choose, ways we should think. God's desires give us a, an inclination of what he wants to do, us to do in certain circumstances. Let me give you some examples of this. Ephesians chapter 6, it speaks to ch children and teenagers, and this is God's desire for you. It says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So here you see a desire of God for children, young and, and old children. 
to, to obey God, to obey their parents. For husbands, God expresses a desire for, for us. Ephesians chapter five, it says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's a desire expressed by God for us as husbands. Like, hey, we should have sacrificial love for our spouses to put them before ourselves. God has a desire for the church in Matthew chapter 28. He says this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. This is just a small sampling size of all the desires God has in his word, things that we should do. This is the category of, of things that not shall be, but things that should be. Things that should be true. If, if I'm a, a follower of Jesus Christ, if I, I claim to have Jesus as my forgiver and my leader, there are things that should be true about my life based on who God is and the desires he has for me. Now, here's the difference between the decree and the desires. You and I have a say in it. See, I can choose to obey God or not. He can desire for me to be a sacrificial husband, but it's all based on whether I choose to obey it or not. The decrees, I have no say in what God is going to do. Here I do. And then there's a third category. The third category of of God's will is God's will of direction. His will of direction. And, And this is where it gets a little bit gray. You know, the Bible is black and white on a lot of different topics, but there's certain topics in the Bible that there's a little bit of grayness. And God's will of direction are choices that you and I get to make within the boundaries of God's decrees and his desires. I'm going to say something that might be crazy, but these are kind of the choices that God doesn't necessarily really care about. I know, I know that sounds shocking, but if we find ourselves making choices and we're in the boundaries of God's desires and his decrees, God gives us the freedom for some choices to just make it. He doesn't necessarily care about it. In fact, let me give you an example of this in Acts with Paul. It says this in Acts. He says, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And now here Paul's going to make a choice. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. He made a choice. Now this choice here wasn't like some major choice that Paul was like, God, I need your clear guidance. No, God gave him the freedom to choose. Hey, you can stay or you can go. I, I, I really don't care. Let me give you some examples of this in our lives. If you're in the boundaries of God's desires and you're in the boundaries of God's decree, when it comes to the college that you go to, you might have three options that God has approved already and he's like, hey, they're all great. You make the choice. Like it's not a right or a wrong choice. It's just like, hey, here's your choices, go for it. The house that you buy. Some of us like, man, God has one house for me and only one house. I'm not sure. God wants you to live In in your income, that's a boundary, a desire for you. He doesn't want you to make an unwise decision, but there might be four houses in that realm, and guess what? You get to pick whichever one you want. Hardwood floors, or maybe you're a carpet person. Like, God doesn't care. (laughs) Things like if you have kids or not. Things like, man, what career I choose. God is not necessarily in all, every single detail. He gives us a little bit of freedom to make those choices based on who we are within the boundaries that he has given us. But here, here's the deal. We get all that, okay? Okay, that's God's will broken down in three categories. Okay, cool. I got decisions I got to make, Drew. And I, 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 I get all that. Like, that's great. I just want to know if I'm in God's will or not. Like, I, I want to know if I'm making the right choices. How in the world do I discover what God wants for me. 
How do I, how do I get to that place? And, and that's what this series is all about, and I think we're going to work through this framework. You see, I think we discover God's will through three things. The first one is his word. God gave us his revelation, and we should spend time understanding the desires that he has. Secondly, we understand, understand God's will. We discover it through his word. Secondly, through his spirit. If you know Christ is your personal savior, the Holy Spirit lives in you and is a guide for you. And third, through his people. God has surrounded you with godly, wise people that you should talk to and you should t- and, and interact with. And that's the framework for the series. We're going to look through these three filters so we can understand God's will in our life. And this morning, we're going to talk about his people. How God uses his people for us to understand his will for our lives. And so if you got your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. We're going to walk through that passage. So I'd encourage you, grab your phone, go to the Bible app, grab a Bible. It's going to be on page 277 in the Northridge Bible. And as you make your way to 1 Kings chapter 12, I want to pause and just welcome you to Northridge Church. Man, all of our campuses, those of you who are watching online, thanks for being here. We we love you guys and we're excited that you're here worshiping with us and digging into God's word. And You know, over the summer, I took some intentional time to just visit our campuses. And I want you to understand why I didn't preach for for around nine weeks. It's because we are one church in multiple locations. And for the vast majority of my time, I find myself here at our broadcasting campus in Irondequoit. And what that does is it limits my time with the people at Webster and Greece and Henrietta. And so during the summer, I take some strategic time to go hug on the people there and and just say, hey, thanks for all that you do to make Northridge Church what it is. And so at Webster and at Greece and Henrietta, man, thank you guys for for loving people in your community. Thank you for the time I had with you just to, to get to know you, to shake your hand and to say thank you for all that you do here at Northridge Church. And so we're in 1 Kings chapter 12, and we're gonna start in verse one. It says this, Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had gone there to make him king. So we're we're given a little bit of of the backdrop of our story. Here, King Solomon, who is the son of King David, has just died. And all of Israel is, is mourning the death of King Solomon, but they're also getting ready to name the next king, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And so all of Israel is gathering for this moment where they anoint and they name the next king. And that's what's happening in this story. Verse 2, it says this, When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled King Solomon. He returned from Egypt, so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. You want to talk about a crazy day for Rehoboam? Okay, he's getting ready to be the next king of Israel. It's like his first day on the job, and here he is faced with a huge decision. Jeroboam, who is a contender to be the king. So here, Rehoboam is his first day on the job. He has to answer this huge question. He's got to make a decision. Hey, your father has put heavy labor and toil on us. Would you pull that off of us? Would you give us a break? He's got a major decision to make. And the guy asking him to make that decision is the guy who didn't get the promotion, who wants the promotion. Can you imagine that on your first day of work? Like, whoa, big time decision. That's what Rehoboam is facing. I got to make a huge decision. And what's interesting is what he does. Verse five, it says this, Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. 
So the people went away. The king, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. And so we're going to find out that Rehoboam's story doesn't go the way it should have. But I think early on, he does some really wise things that, that really teach us when we got to make hard decisions, when we're facing decisions in life, there, there's things that we have to understand that Rehoboam does that are really crucial. The first thing he does is he says, hey, hold on. He doesn't make the decision immediately. He says, give me three days. Let me think. And when you're making decisions in life, I want you to understand this. Time is your friend. Time is your friend. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we, we, we run into when it comes to making decisions is we rush them. We feel the pressure mounting on our shoulders to make the right decision that we often make it too fast. And I love what Rehoboam does. He simply gets here and he says, hey, hold on. I, I need a moment to think about this. I get there's deadlines to decisions you got to make in business and stuff like that, but I'm just telling you, in, in, in a generic form, when you're making decision, time is one of your best friends. Don't rush. I think, secondly, we see Rehoboam, he, he takes time, and part of the reason why time is your friend is it gives you a chance to seek counsel. To seek counsel, Rehoboam goes to the elders who served his father and says, hey, what would you do? Give me some advice. Tell me, hey, what, what is your opinion on this, this opportunity? Wh which direction should I go? And I think we have to learn to seek counsel in, in decision making. But what's interesting is Rehoboam seeked counsel just to check off a box. It's interesting that that's in most cases when we make decisions, we ask people and we've already made up our mind. Hey, hey, what do you think about this? Oh, okay, you don't think I should go this way? Never mind. And that's exactly what Rehoboam did. He already knew what he wanted to do. And he went to the elders that served his father. And guess what? They told him the opposite of what he wanted to do. And so guess what he did? He ignored them. Look at what it says in, in verse 8. It says, but Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? The young man who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father has put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father, laid a heavy yoke. my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Sounds like good advice, doesn't it? But that's what Rehoboam wanted to hear. And here's what's interesting. These young men, they had something to gain by giving, them, giving Rehoboam that advice. They were going to benefit from that decision. And so they pushed Rehoboam to that place. And so Rehoboam has a decision to make, and here's what he does. Verse 12, it says, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days, the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young man and said, may my, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And get this, for this turn of events was from the Lord. And what I love about the ending of this story is it gives us a picture of how God's decrees and how his desires play hand in hand. Because there was something going on here in this story that God had ordained from the beginning that the nation of Israel was gonna be divided into two kingdoms. 
Rehoboam is playing a part of that. But even in the journey, Rehoboam had decisions he needed to make in life that would cause, have an effect in his future. So we look at this story and, and we look at Rehoboam's process of making decisions. And I think even a story thousands of years ago can really play a part in our role today and in our life today. I think we can learn something from this. And I think we have to learn that God uses people in our lives for us to discover what he wants us to do. You're making decisions, understand that God can use people in your life to lead you and to guide you, and he does it in two unique ways. God uses people first to point out potholes, to point out potholes. I've seen this in my life so many times where I've got a plan, I've, I've kind of know which direction I want to go, and I talk to people. And here's what often happens is God uses people to show me in my journey, hey, this is a great start, but just know your journey is going to get a little bit bumpy here because of this decision. Things that I don't see, potholes in the, in the road of my journey that I, I'm missing out on, and they're saying, hey, watch out. These potholes can be sinful things, or they can be just wisdom things. Like, hey, I don't, think, I don't think you're seeing the whole picture, but God often uses people in our life to, in, in choices that we make to say, hey, hold on a second, you're not seeing this. Hey, wait a second, it's gonna get bumpy there. So God uses people to show us potholes, but then secondly, he uses people to discover good paths, to discover good paths. It's, it's the great thing about people is like, hey, here's a pothole, but guess what? Here's how you avoid it. Let me steer you in just a little bit of a different direction so you can avoid that. This has happened so many times in my life. I, I think about the journey of dating Ashley that I told you about in the beginning. And I remember nine months into dating Ashley, I sat with my mom and my dad, and I told them, hey, dad, mom, I think this is the one I want to spend the rest of my life with. I, I, I think this is the girl. And, and, and my parents would say, man, we see it. That's awesome. And then I began to lay out the plan for them. Hey, I still got a year of school left. Like, there's bills with that. Ashley just finished college. Like, how, how are we going to manage that? And I expressed to my parents, here's our plan. And my parents stepped back and they said, this is a great plan, but here's a couple things that you're missing, that you can't see, that you don't know, and, and here, here's where you got to adjust. So they pointed out some of the potholes in our plan for the future, and they said, hey, here's a better way to go about things. And I'm telling you today, we need people in our lives to show us the potholes and to reveal good paths to us. And so when it comes to making decisions, maybe you're making decisions shortly in life where it's like, I don't know what college to go to, or should I transfer careers, or should I switch majors, or should I date this person or not? I don't know what decisions you're making, but here's what we all have to learn. We have to create a rhythm in our life, something that's consistent, where we just learn to ask for guidance. We have to learn to ask for guidance in every decision in life. And here, I get this. This might seem like it's elementary, Right? This might seem like common sense, but do you know how many people from week to week that sit across from me in my office that have made really poor decisions that I look and on occasion just say, hey, did you ever run this by anybody? Well, well I never thought to do that. Why, why, why would I ask somebody else about a decision for me? And, and I think at, at some level, asking for help and guidance is a pride thing. I mean, we, we kind of step back. I, I'm guilty of this. Where I'm like, listen, I'm a grown man. I can make my own decisions. I, I don't need someone else to tell me what I should do. Like, I've got it figured out. I've got a good plan. And you might have a good plan, but there's some things in your plan, I would bet, that you can't see that somebody else can. And I think at, at some level, our pride tells us, now, I don't need help. 
And I think we have to learn to humble ourselves to say, hey, I can learn from anyone. People can see things differently than I can. And you think about the Bible, you think of Rehoboam's dad. His name was King Solomon. And Solomon was one of the wisest person to ever live on the face of the earth. In his story, God asked him, hey, what do you want in life? I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And if you ever thought there was a guy in life who could walk and make decisions and didn't need anybody's help, it was King Solomon, Rehoboam's dad. But look in the Bible. He wrote a good chunk of the book of Proverbs. And look at what he says about seeking guidance. Proverbs chapter 12, it says this, the way of a fool seems right to him to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 11, he says this, he says, where there is no guidance, a people fail, falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 19, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 24, he says, for by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 28, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. This is a guy who God poured out wisdom to, and here he is saying in life, you need help. The person who leans on their understanding, you know what Solomon says about that person? You're a fool, because there is safety and there is victory in many counselors. Andy Stanley, a pastor in the South, he says it like this. He says, great leadership is not about making decisions on your own. It's about owning the decision once it's made. And so if it's really important in our life to have a rhythm when we make decisions to ask for guidance, you know what's even more important? Who we're asking for guidance. See, I'm not telling you today to, in every decision, just go find random people and say, hey, what do you think about this? That's not wise. But here's the reality is you need the right people to find the right path. If if you want to live a godly life, you better surround yourself with some godly men and some godly women in your life. If that's the route that you want to take, you got to set yourself up and you got to get the right people in your life. This isn't in your notes, and I'd encourage you to write this down. Here's four things that you should look for when it comes to asking people, to finding the right people. First one, choose more than one person. Choose more than one person. Don't just ask the same questions to the same person. And here's four people that you can look for. Find a godly person. Find an expert. Find someone you know and find someone you don't know. Get a multiple, get multiple perspectives. Second thing, and I think this is so good, choose someone who loses nothing to tell you the truth. Find someone who has no skin in the game. This was what Rehoboam's problem was, is he found guys, young men, who would benefit from the decision he made. Guess what? They steered him towards their benefit. Find someone when you're making a decision that, will, that literally will lose nothing to tell you the brutally honest truth. Third, choose someone who is where you want to be, not where you are. I think this is one of the biggest mistakes we make when we, when we seek guidance, is when it comes to parenting, when it comes to raising our kids, when it comes to our future, when it comes to our finances, what we often do is we find people who are in the same phase of life we are in, and we ask them, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what's, what's really beneficial and can be beneficial to us is when we seek guidance, why instead of going sideways, why don't we find the person with the finances that we want? Why don't we find the person who parents the way we do or has been there and done that? Find a mature couple who, who is in retirement and say, hey, how did you get there? How, 
can you answer some of these questions I have? Find somebody who is where you want to be, not where you are. And then fourth, man, maybe we go into these conversations with people with a sensitivity that God actually might speak through them and reveal his plan to us. God might actually show us what he wants for our future. So here's how how I like to say this. You show me your friends, and I will show you your future. I I mean that. Here's the truth about life is, man, who you surround yourself with and who you give permission to speak into your life, if you show me them, I can point you in the direction of your future. Man, if you're a teenager today, and, and you think you can hang out with all the cool kids who don't really care about God and still have a godly life, can I tell you, it doesn't work that way. Who you surround yourself with ultimately will determine the direction of your life. If you want to have a godly life, you've got to surround yourself with godly people. You want to have success in business, well, surround yourself with some really wise businessmen who have been there and done that, face the, the things that you have faced. This is what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, he says, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Let me, let me just kind of decipher this for you. This is the Drew Karshner translation of that verse. Don't kid yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Bad friends lead to bad decisions. That's the reality of life. That's the truth of the Bible. In fact, today, I want to show you how God uses people in your life through an illustration to find the right path. Because at the end of the day, we're all trying to discover God's will for our life. I got decisions to make, and, and, and I just don't know how, how God's going to lead me and show me what he wants. And I'm going to show you this morning how God uses people. People in your life. See, here, here's the hard part about making decisions. Is you're like, man, there are so many options, right? Like, I, I could do this, or I could do that, or I could deal with that. Like, I mean, you look, and you're like, man, there are so many options. I don't know what to do. And as you look at your options, no, none go away because they all kind of seem like good options. And that stress just weighs on you and weighs on you, and the pressure just, you're just like, oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I think I'll do this one. Uh, yeah, yellow's my color. Right, yeah, it looks good with my skin. I'll just go this way. So how in the world, with this many options, do we make the right decision? That's the pressure we all feel. Like, I want to do it God's way. I do. I just, where is God's way? I'm going to show you. See, this is how God uses people. You got a decision to make. And you begin to talk to people. And here's how God uses people as a filter system. You throw all your decisions out. And you begin to see what God does with people. Okay, so you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know which college to go to. And then you start talking to your friends. And this is the the layer I like to call the obvious layer. Okay, these are things that we should know, but sometimes we don't know in the midst of all the decisions we make. And so you're you're like, I I don't know which college to go to. And you've got this list of, of 12 names of colleges that you like. And you sit down and you're like, hey, you sit down with a friend or a family member. And you're like, hey, could you help me? And they're like, hey, hold on a second. There are three colleges on this list that don't even have your major. You could probably cross those off. (laughs) Obvious, right? But sometimes in the midst of making a decision, those obvious things we miss out on, right? Because God uses people to point out the potholes in our decision making. Maybe you're having problems with your marriage. You're struggling. Marriage is tough. 
And you're talking to your friends about it, and you're just kind of like, you know, I just think it would be easier if I found another man or another woman. I'm just going to go pursue that. And your friend says, hold on a second. This should be obvious to you because I know you love God, and I know you want to follow God, and, and that is not okay with God. It's obvious, I know, but maybe you don't see it. So this top layer, as you have conversations, people catch the obvious potholes that maybe you're missing. But then you go down the filter. This is what I like to call the wisdom filter. This is where maybe you bring in an expert. Maybe you're here today and, and you're saying, you know, I wanna buy a house. Me and my wife have been talking about buying a house. It's been a dream for, forever. We're tired of renting, but we don't know what to do. And so here you say, what is wise? And so you go and you find a financial planner and you sit down and you show them your finances and the financial planner says, hey, listen, I know it's a dream of your family to buy a house, but as I look at your finances, there's just some debt over here that I don't want when you buy this house to feel the stress of, of, of not being able to make your payments. Let's wait two or three years because that is what's wise for you. And they catch that pothole that maybe you can't see because they're an expert. Maybe it's a, a, a couple that has just retired. They have great kids following Jesus, and you sit down, and you're like, hey, I'm trying to discipline my kids, but I'm losing the battle. Anybody losing the battle? Amen? <laughs> you sit down with an older, wiser couple, and you say, could you just give us wisdom? What are we doing wrong? What are we missing? How are we not communicating correctly? And they give you wisdom. But then you drop down to what I like. This is obvious, this is wisdom, and then this is fit. You see, this is the category of people that know you the best. It's the people closest to you. So it might be your spouse, it might be your parents, it might be that best friend, and they know your struggles, they know your passions, they know your personality. And so you're, you're trying to find the right college and you, you've narrowed it down to four colleges. You're ready to choose, and, and your best friend looks at you and he says, hey, listen, there's one college on that list that I've heard from a lot of my friends is a party school, and I know you, and I know your struggle in high school that not many people know about you, and I just think it would be a bad choice to go to that school because I know you struggle with that. Maybe you should cross it off the list. These are detailed, intricate things about us that not many people know that people pull out the potholes and say, hold on a second, I know you. This is not what's best. And what's amazing, as, as you work through the potholes, God uses people to show you and discover good paths. And here's the crazy thing, is as we get down to this bottom filter, what's amazing is, I believe right here is where we discover what God wants for us. But I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we think, man, God only has one option, right? Only one college that he wants me to go to, only one female that I can date, only one house that I can buy, and usually that's not the case. As you work through the filters and you catch the potholes through your relationships, what's amazing is you will find that you have multiple options within God's desires and his decrees, and you're like, man, I got three colleges on my list, and guess what? God doesn't care. I have the freedom within my personality and my discernment to make the call, to make the choice, because I did what God wanted me to do. And here's, here's what I know is, man, this sounds easy. It's easy to throw balls down the little filter system. It's hard to live out. 
How do I take this process and apply it to my life today? How do I leave here today? Because I got decisions to make, Drew. I got big things to make. How do I live this out? And as a church, we want to help you. I'm not here on stage to say, hey, cool, that was, a, that was a great message. Good luck. Hope you get it right. But I think this is the purpose of the church is to come alongside you, to, to walk with you through the hard times in life, to walk with you through the difficult decisions. And the way we do that, the way we surround you with godly people is through our community groups. And so here's my application for all of us. I'm going to give you three. The first one is maybe you're here today, you're new to Northridge Church, or maybe for some reason you took a break from community groups because you were tired or weary. And here's my challenge for anybody who is not in a group today. You need to get into one. Get into a group. And I will plead with you, I will beg with you, the way we get you around godly people, wise people, people who have been there and done that, is through our community groups. And you need to be in one. If you're a guest and you don't like groups, here's the reality. You probably won't like this church because I'm going to stand on this stage on a regular basis telling you you need to be in a group. You need to be around biblical community. You have to have friends, godly friends, wise friends in your life. And the way we do this as a church, it's our backbone is through community groups. And so here, I want to make it easy for you. If you're not in a group or you kind of stepped away from group, all you have to do is on your connection card where you're taking notes at the bottom, Check the box that says community groups, and we will have our staff follow up with you, ask some questions, and find the right group for you, the right people to help you walk in a godly path. But here's the crazy thing. At Northridge Church, I think around 90% of our average attendance is in community groups. Praise the Lord. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I would challenge you, the big thing for a lot of you is to be active in your group. Be active in your group. And, and I think for many of us, that looks different. For some of you, it just means showing up consistently. Like stop coming every other week. Like be there every single week. I know things going on. It's okay to miss. I'm just saying be consistent. For some of you, you've been in group for seven years. And it's time you, you stepped up and said, you know what? I, I know group inside and out. And you meet with your leaders and say, hey, train me to be a, a group leader. Because next year, by this time, I want to be leading a group. For some of you, it's just opening up. Being transparent, say, hey, I got decisions I got to make. I I have problems and I have struggles. And when you open up, you might leverage somebody else up to share their struggles. But I think for the vast majority of us, here's the truth about Northridge Church, is we're built by a lot of mature believers. There's a lot of you in in this room and watching online and at one of our campuses. And you're a mature believer. You've been walking with God for a long time. And here's the reality is is our God-given responsibility is to be this for other people. If you're a mature believer, can I tell you, our church needs you. It needs you to speak into people's lives and help people because our church reaches a lot of new believers. A lot of people who who don't know God's word inside and out. It's a big book and it's hard to read and sometimes it's confusing. And guess what God wants you to do as a mature believer? Help people process through all of this. This is what God, we, our church needs you to do and and what God has given you to do as a task, as a mature believer, to be the filter process for those who have questions. So be active in your group. And then third and finally, I think we all need to do this, is we just need to evaluate who's speaking into our lives. Who's speaking into my life and who's speaking into your life. Can I ask you, who have you given permission to give you advice? Who have you given permission to influence you? And maybe you step back this week and you just look at the people who are, who are giving you advice and you say, hey, ma'am, there's some people I just probably not need to eliminate their voice. 
I'm not saying eliminate the relationship. I'm just saying stop allowing them to speak into your life. And maybe for some of you, you need to add some godly people, add some wise people, and surround yourself with people who are where you want to be, not where you are. But I get it. Man, I got decisions I got to make tomorrow. You have decisions you got to make tomorrow. And and the question is, is, is what does God want me to do? And, and, and I want to begin in this series to start taking the pressure off of you. And I think this might, might help is, you know, the goal of this series, when you think about this series, four weeks of discovering God's will, I, I think you have to understand that the goal of this series is for you not to make the right decision, but the goal is for you to become the right person. And I think that's important to understand because the pressure of getting it right haunts meant a lot of us. But here's what I know about God, is if God can shape you as a man or a woman, and he can mold you through his character and through his word and through his spirit to become the right man or woman, here's what will happen. When you become the right person, well, guess what happens naturally? You'll begin to make the right choices. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for your people. Thank you for your spirit that guide us. And God, I know every day I'm bombarded with decisions I have to make and the pressure mounts and it gets scary. But God, help me to be the right man. God, help us to be the right people because when we become the right people who follow you and obey you, we'll ultimately eventually make the right decisions. So give us wisdom and discernment as we allow people to speak into our lives each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.